Let's just crack on, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> that usually works. <laughs> Hello there, folks, and welcome back to the EuropeLX podcast, the only podcast in your feed that's been spending the last two weeks trying to work out puns for the name Schultz. I'm Ewan Healy. With me, of course, is Gabriel Hedengren. Hi, Ewan. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. It's such a busy couple of weeks in the electoral sphere and in the personal sphere. It's my birthday this week. Gabriel, it was my birthday. Oh, con- oh congratulations. It was mine a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice. Amazing. And I turned a redacted age that I won't be sharing on this podcast. And you'll speculate <laughs> on my age, as I'm sure you'll be planning to. But when we say busy, we, we really mean it. We've got elections and referendums in Iceland, France, Austria, Portugal, San Marino, Switzerland, the UK, and of course, Germany. It's really getting that panned out there. And we have got it all covered for you in this podcast. Not to mention, Gabriel, you had a conversation with Tobias, our leader and founder this week, didn't you? Yes. So we caught up just to go through all the details and all the latest ahead of the elections in Germany this Sunday. Obviously, there's a lot of news out there. It's covered in in most countries, but uh, it's a really useful sort of rundown of of all the parties and all the various coalitions that that might come out of these unexpectedly exciting German uh, elections. So yeah, do stick around for that later on in the show. Absolutely. But first... Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind your blacks in this podcast? We're currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at EuropeLex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more through our Patreon. Access all that from as little as one euro per month. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So we're kicking off our headlines this episode with electoral news out of Norway. They held the first of many elections this September. Uh, and as we've discussed in this podcast, and our colleague Nasruddin Taibi has written on our site, the results were almost certain uh, ahead of election night. And as expected, the centre-right-led government of Erna Solberg lost its majority. The centre-left Labour Party will be returning to power. And the centrist centre party, the left-wing socialist left party, and the far left third party saw significant gains. So a real left wing shift in Norwegian politics came to fruition, confirming what we'd seen in the polls. More specifically, 10 parties will be part of the new Norwegian parliament. The central left Labour Party came first, but at the same time had their worst result percentage since 2001. They will, however, have 48 out of the 169 seats, losing just one seat compared to 2017 when the last elections were held in the country. The centre-right Conservative Party lost nine seats, which means they'll now be at 36, which is their lowest results in more than 10 years since 2009, which was the last time they weren't in power. The Centrist Centre Party will uh, now have 28 seats, which is an increase of nine since four years ago, and the highest they've received since the 1993 
election. On the other hand, the National Conservative Progress Party lost six seats. It will be having 21 seats over the next four years. This is their lowest results since that 1993 election as well. So a lot of uh, record highs and lows, or at least parties trending higher than they have for decades or lower. There are a few left-wing parties in Norway, as we discussed a couple of weeks uh, ago on the podcast. So you have the left-wing Socialist Left Party, which was one of the, were the winners of the elections. They gained two seats since 2017, and they'll now have 13 in the new parliament. There's also the far-left Red Party, which was an even bigger winner, getting eight seats, uh, compared to just one they got back in 2017. So that really shows you sort of the red wave that we saw so well. The center-left and more mainstream labor movement dropped. You saw the far-left and the left-wing parties gain, as well as the center party, who everyone knew was going to be supporting this new left-wing coalition. The rest of the parties that managed to have parliamentary representation is a centrist liberal party that gets eight seats, the Green Party of Norway, and the center-right Christian Democratic Party. However, they'll only get three seats each since they fail to pass the country's four percent threshold. There's also a very small party called the Patient Focus Party that received one seat due to doing exceptionally well in one of the constituencies. Quite interestingly, I guess, they're a single issue party that opposes the centralization of healthcare, due to which a local hospital in the town of Alta uh, is now threatened to close. So they managed to really rally uh, support locally and get a seat in parliament. However, the situation is so stable that it won't really have a big impact on proceedings going forward. So the current status then is that the coalition government negotiations are taking place and we will of course be updating you on how they go and what we mean for the future of bloc politics in Norway, but uh, definitely certain to have power shift in Norway towards the center left. To round off results for this week, we are going to Russia, where many have been watching uh, an interesting and controversial election. So the governing Putinite United Russia Party won around 50% of the vote as of recording, with the final results still to be confirmed. This, however, comes on the back of both direct evidence of electoral fraud through ballot stuffing and some statistical analysis showing immense discrepancies. On top of this, in areas where electronic voting was used for the first time in a national election, votes for the opposition smart voting endorsed candidates and for government ones differed immensely from regular paper ballot papers. As a result, the runners-up, the communist KPRF, have called into question the results of the election and are considering organising protests against fraud and the electronic voting system in and of itself. The KPRF were trailed by the monarchist nationalist far-right LDPR and the left-wing national conservative SRPZP that both saw their vote shares fall from the 2016 Duma election and the Voiliudi a pro-Putin Liberal Party who entered the State Duma on this time their first election. The right-wing Rodina, business-focused centre-right Rosta and centre-right GP are all gained a seat each, along with five independents who are all, of course, endorsed by the regime themselves. While United Russia winning was not exactly a surprise, the level by which they won was not predicted, even by state-backed pollsters. In addition, turnout was only marginally up from 2016 at 52% uh, from 48% last time, still far below the 2011 result, which was 60%. Now, will this election cause another wave of protests like in 2011, when people witnessed fraud like we saw this time? Or will it just further cement Putin's rule as he enters the third decade in power. 
The direct political ramifications of these results are yet to be seen. For more context on all of this, of course, we have loads of stuff on our Twitter and, of course, an analysis piece on our website by our in-house Russia expert, Alistair Warner. And now to Iceland. So we've gone through the recent election results and now we're going to go to upcoming elections and Iceland with the first national level ones coming up on Saturday this week uh, and I, f- I feel a bit bad for Iceland I feel like with all these big powers and larger countries going to the polls an election that you know if held a couple months ago would have been centerpiece of a podcast episode is now very much uh, squeezed into to the agenda. That said, it is it is an interesting one. So the current government is made up of the National Conservative Independence Party, the left-wing left-green movement, and the centrist agrarian progressive party. The Europelex polling average currently sees the three-way alliance losing their parliamentary majority, with the Independence Party declining to 22.5%, which would be the party's worst result since it was created back in 1929. So they're doing really poorly. The left-green movement is also also in decline from around 17% to about 12% in our polling average. And the Progressive Party is the only governing party that is on the rise, polling from 10.7% and fifth position in 2017 to currently being in second position with 12.6% uh, just in the run-up to the elections. The Social Democrats, uh, who are one of the parties that favor EU integration, are also contesting second place polling at about 12%, while the Pirate Party, which is, um, Iceland is one of the countries where the Pirate Party has their sort of strongest base in parliament. They're set to rise as well from 9% to 11%. There's also a liberal uh, party, the Reform Party, that looked like they also might double their assault, rising to 11%, while there's a left-wing newcomer, the Icelandic Socialist Party, uh, that's profiting from the decline of the left-green movement, standing at 7.6% at the moment. As if that wasn't enough, the centrist and anti-EU center party is also on the decline from around 11 to around 6% in current polls. Uh, and the same goes for the centrist anti-EU People's Party, which is set to drop from about 7 to 5%. So it's, as you'll hear, I'm <laughs> citing all these numbers. It's a very fragmented system where it looks like you can actually come in second place with around 12-13%. So it's almost Netherlands-level fragmented. So it'll be interesting to see what that results in in terms of um, the Icelandic government. And by the time this episode comes out, uh, the elections will most likely be taking place or have just wrapped up. So after you finish listening to us, do go on to our site and our social media for continuous electoral coverage and an analysis on what these elections will mean for Icelandic politics. For another set of elections that are unlikely very underway by the time you listen to this podcast, we go to not just another island, but another Norse origin island. That is the Isle of Man, which is a small island between the islands of Great Britain and Ireland. That is a British crown dependency, so has autonomy over its domestic politics, but the UK oversees defence and foreign policy. So the House of Keys is the lower house of their parliament, the Tinwald, which claims, as many do, to be the oldest parliament in the world. Now, this island, like many small islands, has a strong tradition of independence running for elections. And that, of course, will disappoint our fans who love multicoloured bar charts. But alas, this will probably be quite shades of grey as we watch 
56 out of 65 of all candidates being independent. However, in the last 20 years, there have been a few more political parties involved in the island's politics, but still only a small proportion of the parliament. Nevertheless, the Liberal Party Vanin and the centre-left Manx Labour parties are both returning to contest these elections. Vanin will hope to hold their three seats and perhaps add a fourth, while the Manx Labour Party aims to reverse their losses in 2016, which saw the party lose representation. This September's election will also see a new party, the Isle of Man Green Party, contest their first election after being founded back in 2016. They're putting up two candidates. The chief minister, the head of government of the island, is stepping down, so there will be a new chief minister after these elections, likely to be another independent. And moving on with what else, but more electoral news. So this will be a, a brief tease, because if you heard about electoral news, you thought Germany, that is because this weekend, as none of you will have missed, will be an electoral mayhem, with Germany's election on Sunday being the most covered, of course, and talked about, uh, and rightly so, I must say. Instead of blabbing on about it right now, we're going to let our leader and the founder of Europlex, Tobias Gerhard Schminke, talk about it a bit later in the podcast, but I guess just a, uh, a reminder again to please, you know, go on our Twitter, our Facebook, our website. We are posting a lot of data, a lot of projections, predictions, analysis, and that'll just be ramping up until Sunday. So yeah, do do stay on top of all of all the latest news with your Plex. Now some quick nods of head to other elections that are going to be taking place this weekend, but will definitely receive less coverage. And the first of those is in Austria, where citizens of the upper Austria state will head to the polls to elect a new state parliament and state government. Now, 56 seats are up for grabs there, with the centre-right OVP polling very much ahead of everyone else. The right-wing FPO is polling at second place, with the centre-left SPO and the Green Party trailing behind. It's pretty much the same picture as the last election in 2015, but with a larger distance between OVP and FBO. There are also a string of lovely referenda coming up this weekend. So country probably most well known for uh, for holding um, referenda Switzerland uh, will also contribute to what is really a super Sunday by letting Swiss citizens vote in what could be a very historic referendum actually on the legalization of same-sex marriage. So if approved, the referendum will result in an amendment of the Swiss Civil Code, replacing words such as bride and groom with more broad expressions such as two people or the engaged, which will allow LGBTQ people to have the right to marry in Switzerland, which uh, is obviously uh, a sea change socially. Around 20,000 people turned up at this year's Zurich Pride March in what represented a major public demonstration of support for the yes vote, and the latest polling does show that the proposed marriage for all act will be approved quite comfortably. And, you know, in a country, as I said, like Switzerland, that has a long tradition of holding sizable referendums, September 26th voting could become one of the most important ones in terms of the socio-political impact that it has. Another referendum on the ballot that's getting way less attention is the 99% initiative that would raise taxation on high capital income. So uh, in a lot of other countries, that would maybe get uh, be more actual and get a lot of political attention but sort of being ignored at the moment in Switzerland uh, and that's probably because it's not expected to pass. 
Speaking of referenda on important social issues, this Sunday, the San Marinese population of San Marino, of course, will be holding a referendum and having their say on abortion. The campaign to make abortion legal is run by the Union of San Marinese Women, a feminist organization which was officially founded two years ago in an effort to continue the decades-long fight for abortion rights in the microstate. If the yes option doesn't succeed, another referendum on the issue won't be allowed for three years under the Constitution, but this is a country where the government seems to continuously delay any bills on abortion, and abortion is currently punishable there by at least three years in prison, the organisers seem to think that this risk is worth it. We'll of course keep you uh, updated on our social channels with the results. Also, you guessed it, this Sunday, uh, Portugal will be holding local elections with 308 municipalities and 3,092 parishes being fought over among 21 parties and non-partisan independent candidates. The Socialist Party became the grand victor of the previous election in 2017, electing 159 precedents across the country's municipalities, including the re-election of Fernando Medina in Lisbon, who will be defending his new term this time against the centre-right supported Carlos Moedas, former European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation, in case you didn't know. And this election is perceived by many political analysts as an instrumental test for the Socialist Party's control of the previously won municipalities, but also for Antonio Costa's centre-left government legitimacy. So don't miss out on the Super Sunday selections. We'll be here to give you all the updates again. Just check your feed and it'll all be there. And lastly, on electoral news, but thankfully not elections that take place this week, this one is about an election that is planned for November the 14th, where Bulgaria is going up against Israel to be the country with the most elections in a year. That's right, Bulgaria is going back to the polls on the 14th of November. The Balkan country held parliamentary elections in uh, April and then again in July. However, even after those two elections and many rounds of government negotiations, Bulgarian politics nerds will know the new party system has not managed to produce a government. This election will be even more special for Bulgaria as it will be held on the same day as the presidential election. So that will be an interesting doubleheader to watch. We will, of course, be considering everything that will be taking place. And our regular guest, Teodoro Yovcheva, our Bulgarian correspondent, will join us to tell us more closer to the time. Yeah, and um, they won't have to compete with um, around 55 other uh, electoral events that uh, the week. As far as you know. As far as we know. It has been an unstable year, so maybe I, I speak too soon. Um, another country that's been going through political turmoil and difficulty is Romania. Uh, so these are actually some non-electoral news. And in terms of the crisis there, uh, last time we spoke about it, we saw the liberal USR Plus leaving the centre-right-led government of Florin Chitu over the sacking of Stelian Yon from his job as Justice Minister. And we discussed how that is connected to the government's infrastructure programme and infighting within the National Liberal Party, which is controlling the government at the moment. As it stands, the constitutional court in Romania is expected to rule on a no-confidence vote against the government after having postponed its decision to September 25th, meaning it will take place after the National Liberal Party's Congress, where Prime Minister Florin Cittu and former Prime Minister Ludovic Orban will compete for party leadership. So there's very much an ongoing crisis there and this interesting dynamic where there's a leadership contest uh, within the major party, followed very quickly by this vote of no confidence. So we'll definitely always keep you posted on the major updates from Romania in regards to these events. 
Up next, and to round off our news for this week, we've got your weekly fix of polling news. Everything you need to know from across the continent, every poll, we've checked them so you don't have to. First stop, we're going to a country that we always mention in this segment, and that is, of course, Italy. In early September, a Termometro Politico poll showed National Conservative Fratello d'Italia at another record high. They've been on a meteoric rise for some time at 21.2%. Fratelli and right-wing Liga have, of course, been polling at first and second place for a while now. And, of course, we're going to be watching closely as how the new party system's reshuffling will take place. And now to a country we don't usually cover because their polling landscape is is very different to, to Italy's, and that's France, where ahead of the presidential elections planned to be held there next year, uh, there is quite a lot of movement with right-wing Rassemblement National presidential candidate Marine Le Pen falling to her lowest score since 2012, uh, with around 18% in a recent Harris Interactive scenario poll. The scenario would be that Xavier Bertrand would be the centre-right Les Républicains candidate, and that the far-right Eric Zemmour would be running in the race as well. Zemmour, who's a writer and TV pundit in France, has been rising in the polls as of late, with multiple record highs in the various scenario polls that get released. There are a lot of them, with many different potential candidates at the moment. Actually, in the same Harris Interactive poll, that I just mentioned, where Marine Le Pen saw a record low. Predictably, uh, that's also where Zemmour reached his all-time record high with 11%. So everyone's waiting to see the dynamic of the elections, whether you'll actually see Marine Le Pen being squeezed from the right. Who would have felt that a few years ago? But it's now looking like a, a possibility in the country ahead of the elections next year. We've had more record lows for right-wing parties in Turkey, where President Erdogan's AKP have reached a record low in the latest ACAM poll. The party has polled at 28.3%, and if repeated, would of course be the party's lowest result in their history. Speaking of record lows, the centre-right VMRO DPMNE in North Macedonia polled at 27.6% in the latest Kantar TNS Bunga poll, and that would be the lowest they polled since December 2005. So while in most countries, 27.6% uh, is uh, is a great result for VMRO as sort of the main right-wing force in North Macedonia, uh, it is not, and uh, they're in a crisis there. Uh, so good to, good to have North Macedonia part of this segment because there aren't that many polls coming out of, of there, again, uh, as compared to Italy, where they're literally one per hour, it feels like. And finally, we're just going to hop across the border from North Macedonia into Greece, where Dimiorgia made its first appearance in a poll in Greece. That's right, the Electoral Alliance of right-wing Dimorgia Shana and ID-affiliated Nia Decia reached 1.9% in the latest GPO poll. With the electoral threshold sitting at 3%, the parties wouldn't cross it at the moment. But the two parties are, of course, at the moment, cooperating around a very strong anti-immigration, anti-Islam, anti-communist and anti-statist ideology. So perhaps want to watch there if you're a follower of the far right. And that's all we've got time for this week, or perhaps that's all the news there is, one of the two. But we have got time for a quick sit down with Tobias Gerhard Schminker, an evergreen expert on German politics. So stick around for that and hear more of Gabriel chatting to Tobias. Great. I mean, uh, it's not really short, but yeah, we'll see. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Hi, everyone. None of you will have missed that this year's most covered elections are coming up very shortly in Germany. Known for its very dull politics, usually, the country has proven everything wrong uh, through this latest uh, election campaign with very short-term big movements and uncertainty as to what various uh, coalitions might come out of the results later on this week. And with me to discuss the state of polling and these potential coalitions, is no one but our supreme leader at Europlex, the founder of Europlex, Tobias Gerhard Schminke. Welcome to the podcast, Tobias. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the, the time of your of your day to to speak to us about this. It's a very busy week for not only Europlex, where we're obviously covering this, but for everyone interested in electoral politics, really, and for Germans like yourself, who've had to vote and follow it more from that lens. And uh, I'm assuming uh, you voted already, even if you're halfway across the world. Yep. So I live in Canada and I it was a mess to get the vote or the post the ballot, but I, I managed. Good to hear. Good to hear. Let's just go straight into it, I think, because there's quite a lot to uh, to talk through. And in terms of the polling as it stands now, obviously, the big story that no one will have missed is the center left SPD that has really had a great campaign, haven't they? So sort of what level are they at in the polls and sort of can you put their recent rise in in perspective? Yeah, so the Social Democrats have been in decline ever I can think. Uh, in 2005 and a little bit before that, they implemented neoliberal labor market reforms and ever since they have been declining from 40% to even just 13% last year in polls. So. They have always been a little bit of the sad child in the, in the classroom. But ever since last year's low, they have been slowly rising and then more faster rising very recently over the campaign. So in the last election, they got 21% and now they are standing between 25 and 27%. And obviously this bigger rise that it, there'll be voters coming from a wide range of parties. Obviously the big loser in this election is looking like it's going to be center-right CDU and CSU, who they have an alliance with in Bavaria, which is obviously Merkel's party that's had sort of the dominant position in German politics for, well, decades now. So where are they at and how does that compare historically? Are they looking at sort of their worst election ever or is that being dramatic? Nope, that's exactly right. So CDU, CSU, I would describe them as the dominant party in Germany ever since the second World War. So they're the party of Adenauer and chancellors like Kohl. And they always had comfortable results over 30%. And in recent year, with increasing fragmentation in Germany of the political party system, they have also started suffering. But the really big blow now came with uh, the exit of Angela Merkel, who's not running anymore in this election. And uh, their current chancellor candidate to replace Merkel is quite unpopular. So they've been dropping from 33% in 2017 to now around 22% only to the second spot. And then the third 
sort of of the major parties in this election are obviously the Greens. So can you describe sort of where they are at the moment? Obviously, most people will remember sort of these moments over the past few years of them growing and there even been talk of the first sort of major head of government from a Green Party. They've obviously lost a bit of steam as well. So sort of how bad is that? And what, what can we expect for them? Yeah, so the Greens in Germany are traditionally really good at winning in polls and really bad in winning in elections. And we see that at the moment as well. In the legislative period 2017-2021, they were up to 26% in the Europe elects polling average. And so they were hoping to get the chancellorship. But recent polls show that they dropped to only 15%, which is still the best election result the party has ever had. But given the expectation the party had based on the polls, that's relatively bad. In the last election, they had about 9% of the vote. So uh, one of those weird scenarios where long term, it's really a big victory, but then it will be a big disappointment for them because they at one point thought they'd be sort of twice the size. Obviously, we're speculating now about the final result, but quite an interesting trajectory. There are three more parties, the smaller ones, who are very likely, almost certainly, remaining in the Bundestag. So there's the FDP, the Liberal Party. It's been sort of quiet around them, I think, especially in international media. Can you just give sort of an image of their size and how that compares historically? Yeah, it's funny that you're saying it has been quiet around them internationally, because in the national debate, they have been pretty much the center of uh, everything recently, because they will, and if we talk about that later, I guess, uh, be one of the two kingmakers of the new government. But they will get around, as per current polling, 11%. And that is very much in line what they usually get. It's rather on the good side. But in 2017, they also got 11%. But before that, they did spend one period outside parliament, did they? Or at least they did have a bad period. So that historically, they've recovered over the past decade. Yeah, that's right. So they had a cozy time outside of parliament um, from 2009 until 2013. I think. And that was after they were in government before that and did really unpopular stuff. And that saw them dropping for the first time in post-World War II history, dropping out of parliament. Then there's the Alternative für Deutschland. Obviously, they were the main story and the main focus um, of the last election. What what sort of level are they at and how is that comparing to to last time. Again, it's something that's quite interesting to compare historically that it's been relatively quiet around them, which I assume is because they are sort of out of the picture of any coalitions that we'll discuss. But yeah, can you just give a picture of that? How Will they be happy at election night, do you think? I'm not sure. Uh, in 2017, they got 13%. And after internal power struggles in the party, they are now down to 11. This is still within the margin of error. So they might repeat their 2017 result. But obviously, they were hoping for more. What is interesting, historically speaking, is that new parties always had a really hard time to establish themselves in the German political party system. If you think about it, the only party that has ever achieved that beyond those that existed from the very beginning were the Greens. They managed to end the national parliament more than just once. If you think of Linke as a successor of the uh, SED party that ruled Eastern Germany in an authoritarian manner. Um, and now AFD looks like they could be the second party who achieved that. So again, sort of looking long term, they're obviously establishing themselves from a sort of a party institutional perspective. They're probably happy about that. And you mentioned Die Linke. They're looking quite certain to be the smallest party to 
to enter parliament this time around. How are they polling and how does that fare historically? And what's their campaign been like? So Linke has been caught up in internal power struggles over the past decade, I would almost say. And now this is uh, hitting back at them. They're expected to get 7%, which is below the already not so great 2017 result of 9%. A lot of people talk about Linke, oftentimes in not the most positive ways, but their campaign message is not really going through. So they are very much underneath the radar with their campaign message, which also explained this uh, result. And then I guess very quickly, there are other parties obviously contesting the elections. There are actually quite a large amount of them, but we can pretty much rule out, for example, um, Fayavela, who is the sort of the biggest party outside parliament making it in, right? Yeah, I wouldn't completely rule it out because I have a bad experience with ruling out election results um, <laughs> personally, but the chances are low. They poll at 3%, which is below the 5% threshold. So I guess it's uh, it can happen, but that would be a huge shock to say the least, yeah, right? Absolutely. So now let's go into coalitions because it is important to keep in mind that in the end, when it comes to deciding governments in democracies with proportional representation, the government's determined by the parties after the elections. And especially in Germany, where there is, I'd say, looking internationally, quite a lot of pragmatism between the parties in terms of uh, the coalitions they're open to consider. It's something that's very interesting to to discuss when, when discussing Germany. So can you just give us sort of a snapshot of the past couple of governments? What has been the makeup of them, and uh, will we see a complete shift away from uh, what's been the status quo to a new landscape in Germany, or will the sort of famous stability of the system remain even after the 2021 elections? Okay, so historically speaking, in Germany in the 20th century, we had a situation where we had three parties, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, and the Liberals jumped into bed with either party that would love the most. And then the Greens entered the political stage and later the left. And we had kind of a setup where the Greens and the Social Democrats worked together and the Liberals and the Christian Democrats. Now, with increasing fragmentation, this didn't work anymore because the Greens and the Social Democrats and also on the other side, the center-right camp, they just didn't have the majorities anymore. Now, this led to a situation where we then had a grand coalition for I don't know how long even, 2005, as long as I can think, with the brief interruption uh, of a Christian democratic uh, liberal government. The social democrats, that's important to know, are really sick and tired of that relationship with the Christian democrats. Um, they accuse the Christian democrats of blocking them every time they want to implement progressive politics. And after the last election, the social democrats even said we will go into opposition. So the Christian democrats and the Bavarian partner, CSU, the Greens and the liberal FDP, discussed a potential coalition from for 2017 in September up until deep November. And Lindner, the leader of the Liberals, stated at the end that it is better not to govern than to govern badly and left the negotiations, leaving the poor Social Democrats, which only one option, which was to go pick up the slack and go into another coalition government with the Christian Democrats. So that history is very important to know. As a background story, back then, the Social Democrats also decided that before an election, they would never rule out another government coalition to prevent credibility issues. And that is important for today's setting. Definitely. I mean, if I can sidetrack, I think 
that's something that's, I think, uh, of this past decade due to fragmentation. I think a lot of countries and a lot of parties are realizing. I know that's something they're saying and where I'm from in Sweden as well, that it's probably best to go into an election without making too big of claims about what you won't and <laughs> will do afterwards. You wait for the results and then you negotiate from there, I guess. And this seems like it's what's going to happen now. I guess, can we completely rule out a grand coalition between SDP and the CDU? No, we cannot. And I need to go a little bit into detail here because, as you already rightly said, the fragmentation basically forces the parties to go into three or four party coalition governments, which is really inconvenient because you have so many partners to negotiate with. And of course, a grand coalition with two or three partners, depending on how independently you see the CSU, um, it's of course easier to coordinate such a grand coalition. However, there is a chance of, I would say, 20 to 25 percent based on our recent models that the Grand Coalition wouldn't even get a majority anymore. Yeah, so that does kill it then. And let's talk through these other options. And as most of the listeners, I'm sure, will know, they all have very established and more or less fun names. Um, so another option that there has been talked about is a Kenya coalition. So what's that? And is that possible at all as an outcome yeah just to add on what i said earlier about the grand coalition the spd is really absolutely not interested in having another coalition with the christian democrats and of course the kenya coalition is just a grand coalition plus the greens so i would assume that the social democrats especially if they come out first um have not really an interest in repeating another grand coalition. And that's the same with, for example, the liberals, even if that would be a bit more leaning towards the right, that would make it even less likely, would it, for the two big parties? Correct. So the Kenya coalition is essentially a grand coalition plus Greens, and the Germany coalition is essentially a grand coalition plus liberals. So the SPD is also um, absolutely not uh, in favor of it. So, I mean... Never say never, but we sort of can rule those out or put them sort of further down the list of, of probabilities. And it's looking quite certain, given the distances in the polls, now, that the SPD will become the biggest party by, by quite some distance. So it's quite likely that they'll want to join a coalition where they, they can dominate more or less. So there are a few of those options for them. One that I know the CDU is sort of using as a, as a threat in the campaign is a red-red-green coalition. So I think it's quite self-explanatory, but what would that mean? And what do you think about the possibility of that happening? So the Social Democrats, the Greens and the left would make what's called a red-red-green coalition. The left is favoring this uh, probably more than ever before. They are ready to go into government, especially their leadership. But the Social Democrats and the Greens are less optimistic about this. And there is a disconnect between the leadership and large parts of the, especially the younger membership in both parties. The leadership is rather conservative and would not go into a, a left-wing government. The reason that the chancellor candidate of SPD, uh, Olaf Scholz, doesn't say that outright is the agreement the party had back in 2017 to not rule out any coalitions. And also it's in his interest to not rule it out openly because he would alienate the young left within his party during the election campaign, right? But if you listen to the conditions the Social Democrats and Olaf Scholz and also the Greens and their candidate Annalena Baerbock put up, 
for such a coalition to happen, for example, pledging an allegiance to NATO, then the conditions are so hard that I would believe that Linke could not meet these conditions without blowing itself apart. So something that looked likely, I mean, just a few months ago, it seems, would be what's known as a Jamaica coalition. Obviously, that doesn't include the Social Democrats at all. So can you outline sort of uh, the history of that, that notion and whether you think there is any chance at all that some of, that some of the parties come together and keep the Social Democrats from power? So this would be basically the 2017 scenario all over again. We have the Christian Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens in a so-called Jamaica coalition. And I would say that is a realistic scenario. So if anybody wants to put their money on there, um, that's a relatively safe bet alongside another very realistic option, uh, which we'll talk about later. But the Greens, and that's a limitation, have publicly stated just a couple of days back that they want to see the Christian Democrats in opposition. So the Greens are not super happy with an option where their relatively small partner alongside the Liberals and the Christian Democrats, because the Greens, in terms of environmentalism and also in terms of taxes, have quite different visions of Germany than the Liberals and the Christian Democrats. And also what's interesting, it would be the second time in German national parliamentary history that not the largest party, according to current polls, would move forward at the chancellor. Uh, so the Christian Democrats are likely to come second. And in the Jamaica coalition, we would see that the second largest group in parliament would put forward the chancellor. And there is some cultural sentiment in politics in Germany that this is not the way you do it. So even though there is no formal requirement, I would say German political mood is generally geared towards uh, that the largest party should and has the right to uh, have the chancellorship. So you alluded to it, but there, besides this Jamaica coalition, the most likely, I would say, you can disagree to be us, and the one that to me seems to have the least sort of complications, obviously there will be in any coalition, but definitely what the Social Democrats and the Greens want uh, is what's known as a traffic-like coalition. So what's that and what's the likelihood of that, do you think? Yeah, so the traffic-light coalition would include the Social Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens. And if somebody would ask me and force me to make a statement on who I think would be part of the upcoming German government coalition, I would probably say, don't know. And if that answer is not allowed, I would probably put my money on the traffic light coalition. Why do I say that? The Liberals already stated that they will not rule out a traffic light coalition, and they already positioned themselves in a way that they would be the guardian of economic reason uh, in such a coalition. So if we would end up with a situation where the Social Democrats, the Greens and the left have a coalition uh, option just because they get a majority and the Social Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens also have the option to govern and nothing else works, the Liberals could make the argument that they need to rescue Germany of uh, left economic policies by entering this government coalition with the Social Democrats and the Greens to keep the left out. And they kind of already established that narrative a little bit. Also, they refuse to say 
or pledge allegiance to work together in any case with the CDU-CSU alliance, which is pretty novel. As I said, historically, they have been partners for many years, and they have been critiquing the CDU-CSU alliance. Now, in addition to that, last week, uh, it was made public in the media that Lindner and also the leadership of the SPD, uh, so not Olaf Scholz, but Saskia Esken, they use the do, which in Germany shows that they have an informal, almost friend-like connection, which is quite surprising to me because politically they're quite far apart. But I guess that's how you, at the end of the day, if you have a personal relationship, you come together, you sit on a table um, and discuss. And then also, let's think about what I said at the beginning about the history. The FDP left government and said, it's better not to govern than to govern badly. But let's be real. They can pull this once, but they don't. They can't pull this twice. They cannot say four years later again the same thing and just leave and not enter the government. So I think the traffic light coalition is, is really not unlikely compared to the other options. I guess we're assuming that there'll be a majority between the three parties. Is that is that without doubt? No, not at all. So as I said, if somebody would force me to answer that question, I would honestly say, no, I don't know. I have no idea and no evidence who's going to be part of the next German government. I know AFD will not be part of it. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. But this, I would, from my personal observation, say is the most likely one of the many unlikely ones. Before we finish, obviously, this is all <laughs> super exciting and uh, so many different options, uh, something that sort of we've just assumed in the case of Germany because of, you know, precedent is that what we're looking for is a majority government. Now, again, I come from uh, Sweden, a country where we've mainly been ruled by minority governments uh, and having to deal with that. Is there any way at all that the result of these negotiations will lead to a minority government that just has sort of parliamentary agreements with one or two other parties in order to um, to function. Legally, that is possible in Germany. However, because of the political culture of always having majority governments, it would be extremely painful to communicate this to the electorate, I would assume. Um, I think it would be associated with instability and ineffectiveness. Um, if that's true, it's a different issue, but I think that's how it would be perceived. In addition, I haven't seen anything about this option uh, in, in the media so far that this would be discussed on a higher level in politics or, or in publications. That's nice to hear for you. I'm just imposing my bruised <laughs> thinking and experience from, from, from other countries. Thank you so much, Tres. I think we've, we've gone through sort of all the important facts and basics that uh, there you know, are to know for most people in order to follow these last few days of campaigning and the results coming in on Sunday. It's obviously a huge weekend for, for your Blex as well. So can you just outline sort of what our followers can expect to see from us uh, beyond this uh, lovely podcast they're listening to at the moment. Yeah, it's good that you're asking this. So all the gray hair I have been accumulating over the past <laughs> week uh, was worth it. So I guess there are three points I would like to point out. First of all, big thank you to our partner, Euractiv. Um, they have been supporting us and we have been supporting them. Uh, if you 
are interested in our probability models of who could get a majority based on current polling or what are the latest seed projections, visit their website. Also, I want to have a shout out here to DDHQ, our partners in America. They will have election results on their website presented live and in English. Uh, and we provided them also with consultation on the way there. And most importantly, of course, follow our social media on the weekend. We will be starting to cover the election on Sunday morning, starting with turnouts, and then all results, all exit polls, starting at 6 p.m. Central European time, Brussels time. Thank you, Tobias. I, I look forward to following it myself. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at, at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillem Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Sweet.